Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We typically don't think much about how we structure a conversation. We just sort of wing it and hope for the best. My guest today argues that all conversations, even the small and mundane, can impact our ability to lead, influence, and connect, and ought to be approached with thoughtfulness and intention. His name is Daniel Stillman. He's a consultant, author, and podcaster, and in his book, Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter, he draws on his background of design to show how we can use the principles of design thinking to improve the quality of our exchanges. Daniel and I kick off our discussion by unpacking the defaults of conversation people often fall back on. And then Daniel compares the structure of conversation to an operating system. And we turn to how we can improve this conversational OS, beginning with the way we invite people into a conversation with us and why we shouldn't just ask, hey, can we talk? We then get into how we can improve the interface of our conversations by recognizing the influence that space and place have on them and choosing the right environment for particular dialogue. And we end our conversation with the options you have for responding when it's your turn to talk and how to deal with the gaps we all make during conversations and the feelings of regret that frequently follow. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash conversation design. All right, Daniel Stillman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brad. I'm, I'm stoked, really. So you're a designer who went to industrial school and now you help people and companies apply the principles of design thinking that can be used to design products, to even designing better conversations. And one of the first things that design thinkers do is figure out the default ways humans use a product, a service, a system. Let's apply this to conversations. What are some of the defaults of conversation that may not be working for people? Yeah, so first of all, like I I struggled with this in, in writing my book because I really want people to be reflective practitioners of their conversations because most of us can't remember learning how to talk. You might remember learning how to play chess and maybe you got better at it. You learned some strategies. I think most of us are working with a patched together system like we're magpies. We just we saw something that we thought worked, but and so we, we copied that and maybe it worked for us. And so I, I think we're just we're flying blind with with a with a bunch of duct tape over the thing. So I think it's really up to everyone else to ask themselves, what do I want? Is what I'm doing working? And if it is, don't change anything. Go read another book, man. Live your best life. Like it's it's not to say that there is a right and a wrong way to do it, but I think generally speaking, in group dialogues, which I spend a lot of time on, and also I think with self-talk, we jump to conclusions. We tend to go from our from a question to an answer as quickly as possible. And that's because I think one of the defaults in the, at least in the Western way of thinking, is we don't like to sit with silence. We don't like to sit with uncertainty. We'd like to have certainty. We talked to, before we started recording, we talked about like, what's my response to stress? Get her done. Let's put our nose down. Let's get back to work. And so sitting in silence with the question of like, what should I be doing is not comfortable for us. So I think if there's one default I would change is like, just amp up our comfort with silence or sitting with a question a little bit longer. Another is like, a lot of conversations are ping pong matches. We have that question of like, well, what should we do about X? And somebody says, we should do this. And that is usually the same person in, in a group. There's usually somebody who's just got this default speaker. They're a mover, right? They just want to initiate conversations. They are the least comfortable with silence. They are the most comfortable with thinking out loud. And so everyone else in the group is then going to have their conversation, their conversational response anchored to that first response. And they maybe haven't had a chance to really think their thoughts. So I, I think 
with the silence is how do we make sure we actually welcome in everybody else's perspective? And then the third part is like, well, how do we actually make a good decision of all the things that we've heard about to the thing that we can do? What's a good set of heuristics to apply to making a good decision about it? And this is using design thinking, right? We talk about diverging and converging in creative problem solving between the flaring and focusing, opening and closing is exploring. And so I just would love for everyone to open, explore, and close instead of just like open, close, right? And, and sort of like have as little debate in the middle as possible. That, that's one big set of defaults that I would love for people to pump the brakes on and have a whole arc of opening, exploring, and like a clear close that everyone can get behind. And you know, you're talking about this is you see these things in group dynamic, group conversations. But it also happen like one on one with like a loved one. Oh yeah. Right? The same sort totally. of thing, right? Like you just like, oh, someone says something, okay, boom, here's the here's what I say. And you're like, well, yeah. Or the ping pong match, right, that goes on. Yeah. Well, so the example I love to give my my fiance when she comes to me with a challenge and and not to not to gender our speech, but I think a a, a male pattern that is somewhat prevalent is the fixer, right? Somebody comes to you with a problem and your default might be like, oh, well, here's something you can do, honey. Everybody raise your hand if that's ever annoyed somebody that you are dating or in a marriage with, right? And just, I take a moment when she comes to me with a challenge and I say, well, okay, so let's let's pause for a second. Do you want me to coach you? Do you want me to just empathize with you? Do you want me to tell you what I think? Do you want solutions? What's what's the best way for me to show up here for you? And that's not inauthentic. I'm not like changing who I am to do that. She knows that's the way I, I show up. It's like, what conversation are we in here? And sometimes she'll say like, I just need you to listen. And I'm like, cool. And when she tells me what's going on, I say, that sounds hard. I'm really sorry that you're going through that. But if she's like, look, I really need a thinking partner here. I want to tell you the problem. And I want to brainstorm with you. I'm like, great. I'm going to go get the sticky notes. What wall should we use that still <laughs> is not covered <laughs> by sticky notes in our in our house? And that means taking control of our own responses, which is not trivial, not easy to do. All right. So let's talk about, so one of the things that design thinking does to figure out, you know, to start solving problems with a system or a structure is finding out what the structure system looks like in the first place. And in your right. book, you you sort of lay out, you kind of, you're, you give your idea of what a, a conversational structure looks like, and you call it an operating system, which I think is a useful analogy. And the first part of this operating system that I, you know, you ever think about with a conversation, but the first part, everything, every conversation begins with an invite. Yeah. And I, I think people typically forget that there's an invite to a conversation because most conversations don't start with, I invite you to this conversation. <laughs> But, it, but right. there is an invite. There's like, a, there is, there's something, we, we, when you start a conversation with someone, you're throwing something out to somebody. It's like, hey, do you want to take part in this conversation with me? Yeah. And, and we're talking about like when somebody throws a, like an angry or violent invite at you, you can respond in kind, which is like kind of habitual. Or you can say like, hey, wow, sounds, sounds like you're angry. Or you can not respond at all. Right. Sometimes that's the best way to just, you know, just ignore the comments, let the haters hate. And so it's being really when we when we start to look at the invitation as something we can open up the envelope or not, 
And when we open up the envelope, we don't have to RSVP to that party. Those are there's there's a lot of choices. Once we slow down the interaction, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of decision points along the pathway, and it also makes us a lot more. It makes me a lot more intentional about how I invite other people into things, and to to maybe try and anchor this. I like to joke. It's like some people just like to hear themselves talk. But if you actually said to somebody, hey, I'd like you to, to invite you over for a coffee and I'm just going to talk your ear off for an hour. How does that sound? <laughs> right. Like if we invited them to the real, if we actually wrote the real invitation, like would they come? Right. And most people in a, in a one-on-one conversation, like halfway through, if they're just sort of like, Bleh, their brain is just dumping they'll say halfway through like oh god i'm so sorry like i've just how are you man i'm sorry i've just been taking up the whole all the air here like what what's up with you they'll notice that some people never notice that and so you can just ask yourself do i want to keep coming to that party if that's what this party is about what kind of parties am i inviting people to like just being really really thoughtful and intentional about are my invitations working and am I really explaining what I really want? Because I think one of the challenges people sometimes have is there's this classic, you know, can we talk, which is just sends a chill through everybody's body, I think. Right. Yeah. And so one of your questions was like, how can we make better invitations? And I think that's just embedding other things into our invitation, like being really clear about what our goals are or where it's going to happen or who's invited and why, like the story behind it. So just like just a pure invitation of like, hey, can we talk? It's like, you know, maybe it works if there's a lot of trust, if there's a lot of connection and there's you're actually touching them on their shoulder and you say, hey, can we talk? And they look up and they say, sure, what's up? And then you tell them what's up and you can give them the big picture. But I, I think the more clarity, the bigger, the more zoom back you can give to people, the more helpful it is. But then you can over explain, you know, who's going to read, you know, a four page manual for the, the meeting. Like, here's our roles. Here's our goals. Here's our agreements. Here's the agenda. Here's our outcomes. Those are all things that are really important to know and that might make it easier for people to say yes to coming to the to the conversation. But you know, that's that's the power of editing. Like how can you how can you say it, but how can you say it simply? Well, so thinking about being more thoughtful about your conversational invitations, you know, we typically, people say we need to talk when you need to have that really hard conversation, right? <laughs> yeah. So what would be a better way to have to invite someone to a hard conversation, whether you're talking to an employee about their performance, there's some sort of issue in your relationship, what would be a better invite? Is it just saying like right up from the front, like, hey, can we talk about X issue? Yeah, I mean, so this is, I, I, look, I wish there was a one size fits all for this, but I, I tend to take inspiration from my own understanding of the physical world. And Amy Edmondson literally wrote the book on psychological safety and there's plenty of other people who talk about the importance of safety. And you have to have a sense of safety for a real challenging conversation to land well. I also just like to think about what makes physical safety possible, right? Like when you walk into a space, what makes you feel safe versus what makes you feel unsafe? And I, I often use the analogy in some of my talks of, you, you know, you turn down New York doesn't really have any many alleyways anymore. But if you go to Chicago, Chicago's got a lot of alleys and they are super murdery alleys. You just sort of like walk by this alley and it's dark 
and you you can't even see the end of it, but you know there's no escape on the other side. If you just walked down that, you just took a right-hand turn down that alleyway by accident, and you're in this dark space, and then you can't see the end of it, somebody steps behind you, and now your exit's blocked. Your whole body will freeze up. I'm trapped, right? The walls are closed in on us. There's no sense of safety there. And if you've been to Asia and you walk down, there's all these little alleyways in Bangkok and Tokyo. Those little alleyways are filled with lights. They're filled with like tiny little restaurants. The, the alleyway might be the same size, but it's just filled with life and with people. And we can also see the exits. We can see the, the exits and entrances on either sides. And so I think about just this physical way of thinking about safety, seeing the exits, seeing other people, knowing there's an out, knowing why we're there, not coming in by accident. So it's just like, it's not sandbagging somebody. You don't just like pull somebody into that difficult conversation without giving them time to prep. And I get it. Look, people work in organizations. I think it's terrible. People get fired on a Friday so that they can't, you know, they just like, you get pulled into this conversation and they're like, hey, you're fired. Go get your stuff. Get out of here. And they do that because there's very low trust in a lot of organizations where they think like, oh, if we actually let somebody know we're concerned about their performance at work and we give them tons of time to prepare for it, they'll start downloading all the files from the central server and preparing their exit. And I think that's really terrible. We need to, I, I think it's ideal to give people a heads up of like, look, I'm really concerned about, just seems like you're not engaged with the project. And can we talk about that? What do you need from me? I, I think often people wait way, way, way too long to have these difficult conversations. The best time to bring up a difficult conversation is, the, is as, as quickly as possible, right? So if you're waiting until it's like, desperately terrible and you have to do something about it, the stakes are going to be really, really high and the person's going to be totally unaware that it's going on. So the sooner you have that conversation, the better. And just being as clear about what your needs are and being clear about what the other person's needs are as early on in the conversation as possible. So it's okay. Here, some, some of the takeaways I got as I was listening to you was one, okay, if you're making an invite for a conversation, so if it's just like you're, you're, you're calling up a friend because mm. you want to carp, like say that. Say, hey, <laughs> can I call? Can I just can I can I kvetch yeah. with you for a little bit uh, instead yes. of instead of being like caught off guard, you know, and like sort of yes. trapping your buddy with like a forty five minute <laughs> carp. And your buddy yeah. might be like, hey, you know what? I don't have time right now. Yeah. Let's do it later. Right, but then they know what they're walking into. Right, and they can step in with a full heart. And then the other issue too is like uh, if you if you are receiving the invite, right? If someone's saying, hey, can we talk? One thing you can do is be like, well, what's this about? Like, you know, instead of yeah. just, you can like, even as the recipient, you can have a bit of, you can kind of pull that lever of the invite so you can figure out what exactly yeah. you're being invited to. You can take back some power. It's, it's, it's awkward. And I know that it can feel like a weird power play of like, oh, well, is there an agenda for the meeting? <laughs> right. And, and why isn't there an agenda for the meeting? It seems like there ought to be one. It's like, hey, we're, uh, there's an hour. We're, we're going to ask for an hour of your time. Well, what's the plan? Who else is going to be there? I should, doesn't that seem reasonable to ask that? But we have to find ways of asking that that don't seem challenging or pushing back too hard. Yeah. Uh, and, this is, and this is because like we are collaborative creatures. Like we've evolved to be successful on this planet because we are collaborative. 
And so conversations are collaborative. When somebody waves goodbye at you and you don't wave back, you're like, wow, that guy was a jerk. Like, he didn't wave goodbye. And that's just a tiny, tiny non-responsiveness of turn-taking right there. And so when somebody waits like a day to not send an email, you're like, wow, that, that guy thinks he's better than responding to my emails. Whereas we have no idea what's going on in their world. That's why it's always a good idea. We, we haven't talked about the error and repair aspect of the OS. Like this is, it's just always good to assume that malice is like the, the last option of all the things we think could be going on. Like they probably just have something else going on in their lives. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. So the, like the boss who just calls meetings without giving you an agenda, you know, you might assume, oh, this guy's just a power trip. Like he's just, you know, getting people in this meeting and like, you know, putting them on the spot. And it might be like the boss just doesn't even, he's not even thinking that he's just thinking, Hey, we're gonna have a meeting. So I can talk to you guys. Like, cause I like talking to you guys. Right. And so we have to train people. We have to start training. <laughs> we have to start training people. Oprah once said, and I love, I mean, we could just collect all the amazing things that Oprah said that we should live our lives by. But like, we teach people how to treat us, right? And people learn. People learn. So if we just respond to these meetings over and over again, and we never say, oh, well, what's the agenda? Like, what's the big goal? Who else is going to be there? Some of those clarifying elements, people will start to learn like, oh, Daniel, Daniel needs this. And they're not unreasonable requests. I think that they can be couched, uh, they can be phrased. You can invite somebody to give you that information in a way that is invitational rather than demanding. Yeah, that's the other thing. Keep thinking about it, this is an invitation. This isn't, as long as you let people know they still have autonomy. Yeah. Like that, it can go a long way to being like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. It's amazing what people, whenever people feel like they're being cornered and they don't have a choice, like they just dig in their heels. Yes. And they just won't even do it. But if you're just like, hey, uh, I'd like to do this. I think you, we need to have you here. It'd be really important understand you can't, if you can't make it, but let me know if you can. And then yeah. nine times out of 10, like the person's going to show up because they're like, oh, I have a choice here and they respect my autonomy. So I will, I will go there because that guy, that person respects me. Yeah. Well, even this is the Elon Musk has famously makes all the meetings of his organization optional. And that's a real privilege, right? To be able to say like, cool, I'd like you to come to this meeting, but his perspective is it's more rude to make somebody stay in a room that they don't feel like they're getting or giving value. And so we call this, it used to be called the law of two feet in open space technology. And now we call it the law of mobility. It's about optionality. And you say like, look, if you're not getting value or giving value, I want you to go someplace where you think you are. And a lot of people respond to that. And this goes back to the culture piece a lot of people are like, but if I make my meetings optional, no one will come. And I'm like, well, that's a problem with your meetings, dude. Like that people should want to be there because the problem you're solving is interesting. People should want to be there because you run them well, right? And because you respect people's time. And so those are all things that are completely within your control. So if you think people won't come, if you make them optional, there's a deeper issue there. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So we talked about the invite. Uh, another part of this conversation, OS, is the interface. What do you mean by interface? Yeah, I mean, conversations just have a place and a space, you know? And the, the space and the place affects it. So right now, you and I are on clearcast.io, and it's just voice. And there's actually something really interesting about just having a voice conversation. A lot of people are talking now about Zoom fatigue and digital meetings and, you know, half of 
my clients are like, how do I get people to turn video on? Well, why do you want to, pe- to have video on? Well, I can, I know they're engaged. I'm like, people can be disengaged with their video on, right? So when you have video, the interface for the conversation is suddenly body language and eye contact. All of that stuff becomes available. When we're the interface is real life, we've got a broadband connection. We've got smell o vision. I can point, we can look, we can draw very easily. Reality is terabytes of data. It's a super broadband connection. But the truth is our our working attention is very narrow. And so there can be value to having a limited bandwidth connection. The classic example that I love to give is the value of texting somebody when you're party hopping. Remember that? Going bar to bar. That was fun. And I remember this has happened to me. I don't know if it's happened to you where you actually get annoyed with somebody who calls you when you text them. You say, well, we're going to bar X. And they go, hey, are you Going to bar X, I'm like, are you there yet? I'm like, we told you we're going there. We're going there now. I'm at a bar. It's too loud. I can't hear you. So phone call is the inappropriate interface for a dialogue when we're in a noisy environment. Texting is the best, most efficient way. It's a bad way to break up with somebody. It's the wrong interface to break up with somebody after you've been dating them for any length of of time. And so I think the interface says something about the conversation. So when you go into a boardroom and you go into one of those boardrooms where the table is super duper long, that space says something. There's a TV at one end and whoever sits at the end by the TV, they're in charge, right? We don't take that seat. That seat is saved for somebody who's important. So we might sit the second seat over or in the middle if we really want to play it safe. And so the interface, the space and the place the conversation happens in affects the conversation 100%. And it's up to us to shape our spaces to give us the results we want. And this is like in our home life as well as in our work life. Like there's some people who make the recommendation that it's better for couples to sleep in separate beds and then have a third bed to be intimate in. Some people say, like, you've got a cluttered space, you'll have a cluttered mind. So the space affects the conversation 100%. Where do you have your meetings? You know, some people do these, these fake backgrounds, and I find them interesting. You know, some of them are, like, really professional, and some of them are, like, way too professional. It tells me something like, wow, this person's trying kind of hard. Some people are, like, have a messy background. They don't care, and that's fine. Like, but it says something. It's information. We're getting information from where where we are it's telling us something about what's happening so it's it's up to us to to shape the space and i'll i'll, I'll anchor it in an example brett because in the book i i remember walking into a client where they'd set up the room in a big u and this is a really classic way to like okay we're gonna have this meeting and they put a projector in the middle and that space says sage on the stage and the truth was i don't use slides when i do workshops 99 percent of the time because i feel like that way of giving people information kind of puts them to sleep. And so during the first break, I took the middle table of the U and I rotated it and I put the, the chairs on either side of the table. What, what I find interesting was when people came back into the room, they felt the difference in the room before they saw it. They were like, what's different? Because when you first walk in, you still kind of see the tables and chairs. You don't notice the way they've shifted. They felt the difference in the quality of the room. And I think that's something that we can tap into 
whether it's a one-on-one conversation or a group conversation, like if people walk into your office, do they feel intimidated? Is that what you want? Right. Or do they feel comfortable and at home? Like these are choices we can make in the spaces that we host dialogue in. Yeah. I really like that idea of being thoughtful about your interface. I mean, sort of the way I've applied it in my own life is for certain things, like if it's like agenda, like calendaring, like just like to do's, like I can do that via digital interface, right? It's like, here's what we're going to do. But if like the conversation is nuanced and we need to like really flesh something out, like to me, you get on the phone for that or you do it in person. Because if you try to handle that via like text message or instant message, email or Slack, like it, everything gets disjointed and you don't get that, ter- like, you know, like that gigabyte and terabyte of information that you get when yeah. you have an in-person conversation. 100%. And, and so I think one of the things that's so important for people to do is just to say, where would you like to have this conversation? I'm a, I'm a calendar person too. And I, I've worked with people where they are list people. They work in, they want to work in like Asana or Trello and teams and individuals like, they can have friction over where the information is going and what holds their dialogue together. Really, really early on in my relationship with my fiance, we were doing long distance. She made a shared calendar for us. It was like a big move, right? Because she was like, I just want to know when I'm seeing you next. And I want to block out some, I want to put some blocks in there of things that I have going on. And it, it moved things forward. It was a, it was a bold, it was a bold gesture to say, this is kind of where we're going to start having our conversation about when and how often we're going to be seeing each other. And we started a Slack channel together. I love having a Slack channel with her. It's instead of like buzzing her text or her email constantly with articles or links or ideas for the, the roof deck, I just throw them into these various channels. And every so our conversation is organized and contained. And so these are just choices we can make about how we design the dialogue that we are having in ways that actually work for us and the people that we're having them with. If she was like, God, I hate Slack. I did it because I know that she's into Slack. She's on a couple of other Slack networks. And so I was like, let's have a Slack channel. And she was like, boom, she made a half a dozen channels within the first hour. And that to me, we talk about the push and pull of conversation. Like I was like, oh, she's into it. If it was, if there was empty and silent, for the first month, I would I would have known this is not this is not working. I'm not getting the feedback I need in this dialogue, and we would have tried something else. So another element of the OS, conversational OS are goals. We kind of talked about that with the invitation, like the invitation to a conversation. You can state your goals, yes. But, but even but the goals can shift as you're having the conversation because the conversation is dynamic. Yeah. So I mean that's one. I think that causes a lot of conflict in the conversation because. One person thinks they're talking about one thing and they thought everyone was on the same page. And then as the conversation progressed, the goals have shifted unknowingly. And so people are talking past each other and and being frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think one of the challenges is that people are afraid to share their goals and to find out other people's goals explicitly because we're worried that if they're far apart, we won't know how to navigate it. But to me, I think that's having clarity. Knowing the distance means we can start talking closely about how far apart we are. And one way to do that is actually, again, with physical interfaces. I'm a big, and maybe this is just my design thinking heritage, making visuals of where we are is helpful to close the gap. 
And there's lots of frameworks for this. I'm a big fan of abstraction laddering where we just like, let's talk about all the reasons why and let's keep going. Let's, let's go as many whys up as we can. Like, why do you want that? Why do you want that? Well, this is what I, why, 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 why? Ask a lot of whys. You'll, you may find out that some of their ultimate whys are not misaligned from your ultimate whys. Right? We may be, we may, our whys, our initial whys might seem somewhat far apart, but if we go higher up, we, there may be a shared goal overarching all of it. And then we can say, well, so that's that's what you want. What are some ways that we can get you to that? And this is exploring all of our options. This is being experimental and collaborative. And if we look at all of the ways that we can get it before we start to commit to some, I mean, look, this is just what's taught in negotiation school. I went, I highly recommend wonderful intellectual vacation. I went to the Harvard Negotiation Institute for a week. I learned so much. It was so fun to like do negotiation simulations for a whole week with a bunch of lawyers and executives. And this is what they teach in getting to yes. Make sure you understand why somebody wants what they want and then explore all the ways that seem valid to them to provide what it is that they want. And make sure that they're also interested in exploring your whys and your hows. And then you can start to find some commitments together. It's exploring without committing which is not easy, but important. And you might even discover in that exploration of like what the whys are that you have incompatible whys and there's like, there's, there's no deal. And that's okay. I think a lot of people are afraid of that. Like that's a problem, but like, oh, that's an yeah. option. That's always an option to be like, well, you know, it looks like it's not going to work out. Great guy. I'm going to move on do something else. Yeah. Save some time. Get to know as fast as possible. Like, wow, there's no there there. Cool. Great. That was a quick meeting. Thank you. But if you want to figure out where the yes is, you've got to do all this work. And I guess as you're having the conversation, make sure you make sure you're you're kind of yeah. You sometimes you have to check in. Like, are we still yeah? Are we still talking about the same thing here? Because that can reinviting, reinviting. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And that, that this can happen in a business context or even in a personal a personal context. Right. It's like you know, if you're yeah. having a conversation about money, you know, sometimes or oftentimes you, you realize no, this isn't about money. This is, we're having a conversation about something else yeah. and you have to make sure that you, you, you bring that out as you're having that conversation. Yeah. And this is like, so I was looking at some of your past episodes and I was looking at, at this weekly marriage meeting episode, and this is really about having a cadence of dialogue, like having a regular conversation in place to talk about important things and the check-in. I think a lot of people talk about with, with big important relationships we have like marriages or business partnerships, like we make a big agreement at the end and then we just get to work, but checking in regularly and making sure like, are you getting what you need out of this? That's a scary conversation to say, but if you're doing it weekly, just like with the conversation we were talking about earlier about firing somebody, it's like, Hey, is this job still working for you? Are you getting what you need out of this job? Like, are you getting what you need out of me as a manager? Is this company work for you? I feel like people are scared to ask those questions because the answer might be no. But I think the most high-performing professionals know that eventually you want to you want to be hiring people who have ambition and that means that hopefully they're going to be smarter than you as quickly as possible and that means they might want to move on eventually. And so you've got to find ways to keep them engaged. And I think the same thing goes true for the people in our lives. Um, we have to grow to meet them where they are. And if we're not giving them what they need, got to figure it out. And so I think checking in and saying, is this the conversation you still want to be in? 
and then having that conversation about what to do about it, it's worthwhile. It's not easy. None of this is. If it was, everybody would be doing it. So another element in the conversational OS is turn-taking. And this is, I think, something I think a lot of people, it's like when they think about conversations, they, they often key in, they hone in on this, like, whose turn is it? And when do I, how do I interject? Yeah. And like, why is this guy talking so much? And why isn't he giving me a turn? Mm. So, and I think that's kind of related to tempo too, which we'll talk about. But like, yeah. you, you make the case, whenever there's sort of a, a, a conversation is that there's a call and response typically in a, in a good conversation. Um, so someone makes the invite, throws something at you, and then you have a choice on how you're going to respond. And you say, you kind of broken down, there's five conversational responses or choices we have when it's our turn to speak. So what are those? Kind of walk us through those. Yeah, and I'll also just say it's it's sort of interesting you sort of you see tempo or cadence as the flip side to this. My publisher actually was trying to make the case that I should collapse the OS down to like fewer elements. He's like, but isn't turn taking and cadence and threading like are they kind of all the same thing at different no, like levels of zoom? And I'm like, yeah. yeah, but I think it's useful to to make them discrete because then you can tweak one, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, because to me, cadence is about temperature. And temperature is one way I think of it. Is like, is this conversation growing hot or cold? Is one way to think about it. Is like, eh, this conversation is getting a little bit hot. Like, I want to figure out a way to cool it down. Or like, wow, this conversation is getting way cold, and I need to find a way to warm it up. You know, fast and slow is one way to think about cadence, and hot and cool is another. And and yeah, it is an emergent phenomenon, I guess of of turn-taking. To me, turn-taking is without a doubt, certainly for facilitators, when I teach and coach people on facilitation, which is like one of the main things that I do in my business life, turn-taking is is so clear because it's so obvious. We see speaking, right? The speaking is what happens. And I actually just interviewed a conversation analyst on my podcast, really, really brilliant woman who wrote a book called Talk, She's just, you know, literally just does scientific analysis of dialogue, a totally different aspect of this work. She points out that turn taking really, there are, it's pairs. It's a call and response. There's an invitation and a response. And so the first thing, and we talked about this earlier, the first thing you can do with an invitation is nothing, right? You can just hold in silence. And that's the, I think the, that's in the middle of this this diamond-shaped diagram that I drew out, like not many people will take that response of just like waiting and seeing what happens. But it's a it can be really powerful because people will say more. They might even change their initial invitation if you wait long enough. So you you definitely do not have to respond to somebody. Yeah, can I interject? So there's, I know yeah. a guy, there's a guy that I've you know, worked <laughs> with. Um, I mean, sorry, I'm taking, I'm going to, I'm going to get my turn now. Um, yeah, no, get it in there. Well, cause yeah, you felt that move, right? You're like, right. there's something here. So there's a, there's a guy that I've worked with at church and he's like, and as a profession, he does like, organi- he's like an organizational guy. Like he just helps hospitals, you know, figure stuff out. I don't know. But one of his like, really, I, I finally caught on to this thing that he did. Like you would talk to him. And then he would just be silent and just kind of look at you mm. silent and like smile. And then like, you felt like, oh man, I need to talk more. And he started like talking more. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's actually pretty, it's kind of slick. I don't know if he's doing it on purpose. I don't think he did it on purpose, but I, it's sort of, he did, he, I think he figured it out that if he just was quiet, people would tell him more things because they felt uncomfortable. Right. So this is an amazing, and I'm really glad you noticed that and brought it up because it's like, some people are just reactive. So that's one of the, there's initiating, holding, and reacting. And 
a lot of us are reactive, right? As soon as something, the average gap between turns is like 200 milliseconds, which is really fast. That's like the gun goes off and the sprinter like barely starts sprinting. It's really, really fast. And it actually takes something like 400 milliseconds to form a thought, which means that we are literally talking without thinking most of the time, or we're preparing what we're going to say before somebody's finished. And so that when you talk about defaults and what's in our operating system, this guy has got different software installed on his, his setup. His hold operating system is just set to 11, right? And his React is turned way down. And if we start to see this in someone else, if we can notice it, and name it, I think we can start to emulate it and invoke it. We can see and sense our own initiate and react modality, right? Which is like, I I like to talk and I like to respond. Boom, 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 rapid fire. But we can, with intention, be like, look, I want to be more holdy. I want to up my hold today. And that's where I think naming these things is helpful to say, look, I want to hold more or I want to reflect more, right? Holding is just silence. Reflecting is being like, hey, it sounds like you're saying this. Is that right? So it's not adding more information. It's it's affirming what somebody's saying and getting more from them. And reflecting, being reflective for someone else, like that's what a coach does. That's what I do as a coach is I try to listen to what somebody's saying and hold space for them, not just in silence. I don't just sit there for an hour and just say nothing and let them talk the whole time. I also say, well, it sounds like you're saying this. And then I go do the the, the fifth move, which is uh, sometimes in, in very sparse amounts, reframing, right? Reframing is super dangerous. And I, and I think we all have friends and coworkers who do this, where you, you come to them with a problem. They say like, well, they, they fix it. They're like, well, you know, there's, I mean, that had to die sometime. Whoa. Okay. Thanks for reframing my problem for me. That's not so helpful. Right. So reframing, reframing is, is a delicate thing. Like people have to be ready for it. It has to be welcome and it has to be appropriate for the time. And so reframing people's perspectives. My dad used to say, you know, you don't wake a sleeping man. You, you really want to be careful who you, who you, uh, who you, who you shake awake, you know, giving people advice when they're not ready for it is, is not, is not so it rarely works. And so I think reframing you, you get the right to reframe after a lot of holding and reflecting, but I think initiating and reacting is like, seems like 90% of normal day-to-day dialogue is just talking in quick response. And the reason for that is, is that that's the default. Like we actually, if somebody hesitates, we think they're either rude or calculating. So it's really interesting that this guy who's silent, that you see it as spacious and connecting with you instead of, well, wait, why is he, you know, what's he really thinking? Right. Well, that's how it was at first. Like, this feels (laughs) like, I feel like this is uncomfortable. I'm just going to like blurt out my entire life to him. (laughs) But, but then after a while, I was like, oh, that's just what he does. And so I got used to it. And I'm like, okay, he's just thinking about this stuff. And it was fine. But it took a while to figure out though. And once I did, it's like, okay, that's great. Right. And so saying to people, like, it's so hard to do this in our culture to say, like, you know, let me think about that for a second. 
I want to give you a really good response, not just the first one that comes off the top of my head. So like, I'm thinking a couple of things now. It could be these three things. That's a really amazing way to redesign our conversations instead of feeling like we have to react. Because often I think we feel like somebody asks us a question, and especially if it's coming with force and with power behind it, there's this feeling that we have to respond immediately. Right. You had, you had to have a hot. Take. You had to have a hot take. What's your what, yeah. What's your opinion on this thing? This complex issue. And I'm like, man, I gotta, think, I gotta think about that. Like, no, you can't think. You gotta right. have one now. And you're like, oh, geez, haven't even right. thought about it. Right. And and if you say I need to think about it, that makes you seem like you're I don't know an egghead or you're um you're calculating all the things we just talked about. It's like, what's wrong with our larger cultural conversation operating system that saying let me think about that for a second and literally like having like two seconds of silence. That's awkward. Of course that's awkward. So we have to find ways to, to create that space for ourselves. That's why we, um, right. Do more. I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so another element. So when you're having conversations, you're, you're inevitably going to you know step on toes, misspeak, misunderstand, assume bad faith, et cetera. So what do you do? How do you repair those errors so you can keep the conversation going in a positive direction? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things. One, I have another sticky note here because I was listening to your interview with Neil Rose. I think that's, I'm pronouncing his last name oh, yeah, correctly. The, yeah, counterfactual about, guy, yeah. Yeah, and he talks about regrets. And I, and I just want to be really clear that the stuff that we're talking about can be applied to like one-on-one dialogues and group dialogues, but also with inner dialogue. Because I assume it's not just me. There's I've got a couple of voices in there banging around. And inner speech, the inner conversation is really, really fast. And I myself, and I know it's just me, I'm really hard on myself sometimes. Some of the voices in my head kind of just jump to conclusions at weak signals and use those weak signals to question my entire validity as a human being <laughs> in the professional world, bad inner self-talk. And so I think we're, we're, we're actually nicer to other people than we are to ourselves. We talk about error and repair. Like With the loved ones in our lives, we can kind of, we want to assume the best. I had a, an old business partner who described it as putting a 10 over their head. Like the judges at an Olympics would hold up a 10 to, to rate your dive. And so one way to think about the error and repair operating systems we're working with is, are we putting a 10 over people's heads or are we walking around with a one ready to rock? And so there are a lot of people who assume the worst of everybody. And so I assume, you know, here's the thing, like if it's a choice, which would you choose? Brad, would you rather think the best of everybody or the worst of everybody? I think the best of everybody. Because if you think the worst, yeah. it's like you can't, there's no trust. There, you, there's no possibility <laughs> right. of trust. Right. But on the other hand, and I, I agree with you, like if you're going to choose, like it, it's being angry takes a lot of effort, I think. And so I think it's great to walk around thinking the best of everybody, but I'm also certain you know people who just don't even notice when people are walking all over them. Right. No, that's true. Yeah. So it's like, being at one, being at zero or 10 or 11 is not great. And so we want to be someplace in the middle where we want to see slights, but then inquire about them. Like, Hey, I noticed that that didn't feel so great. Like, what did you mean by that? But really actually ask, 
I'd be like, what did you mean by that? Right. Like have your, have your fists already in a cartoon pugilistic stance. And I think we can do the same thing for ourselves. If we, if we have regrets, that's an inner part of ourselves saying like, I'm not happy about that. And so it's actually good to listen to that voice that's feeling regret. That voice is saying something's not right here. I'm unhappy. And I think we often say like, okay, I want to live my life without regrets, right? That was one of your opening opening points in that in that episode. It's like, I want to live my life without regrets. And that seems like a great goal, but it's actually, we're going to feel regrets because there's going to be a part of us that's like, I wanted something and I got something different. This is information. How do I listen to that voice? How do I have a conversation with that voice rather than just either dismiss it or accept it? And so I think that's usually what happens with our external operating system on error and repairs. We either dismiss it 100% or accept it 100%. Instead, inquire, negotiate, converse. The same way that we would do if somebody says, like, what are you, how much do you want for the bike? And you're like, I want a thousand bucks. And they're like, five dollars. And you're like, no, like, it's a thousand. We're just going to dig in. We're not going to have a negotiation. I'm like, look, I'll accept 950. So we're, we're negotiating, we're going back and forth. So if that voice that it's in me, it's like, that's unhappy, that is feeling regret, I want to listen to it and say, like, look, I see what you're saying. Thank you for the information. There's this other information. And now we're going to move on with the rest of our lives. And so that that's, I think the same thing has to happen with our external error and repairs, like deciding what good looks like and what a mistake is means that we can hold people to the rules more easily. If we don't have agreements, we can't break them, right? Nor can we hold people to them. So I, I think error like many things are better done up front than at the end. Article 48 of the European Union's Declaration for Human Rights, I'm so proud of myself for remembering this, says that everyone shall be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Amazingly, that's actually not in the U.S. Constitution. It's somewhere deeper in our some like bylaw or something. But I, I, I like this idea of innocent until proven guilty in our lives. Right. Like, why not? Yeah, why not? Well, Daniel, we we talked about <laughs> we talked about a lot of great things here. Um, and what I love yeah. about it, I mean, we didn't hit everything, but I think so. The big takeaway no. is thinking about conversations as having these different levers you can pull, and and sort of I don't want I hate using the word manipulate because it sounds like you're manipulating some sort of yeah. like card. But like you know, you can tweak them so that you can make a conversation more productive. And then, like I said, we haven't talked about everything. And later on in the book, you go into like sort of practical applications of this stuff. But I think people, what we talked about, they can start you know, putting this stuff into practice. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah. Well, so first, I think I agree with you about the manipulate thing because it, it means like, yeah. but it just means shape. Shape. Yeah. That's like, what so I'm, if yeah, we say right. like, and shape. that's why I say design, we're designing, we're shaping. I'm shaping it. And you're saying like, we've co-designed, we've co-shaped this conversation, but I've trusted you as the interviewer to take us where you want us to go. And we're all doing that in our conversations every day. We're all trying to shape them for the better. It's This is just about people having some knowledge and perspective on the material. And so, yeah, people can go to the conversationfactory.com slash good talk. They can download a couple of free chapters of the book. That's the easiest thing. Learn about the conversation OS and some of the basic principles. You don't have to give me a penny, um, but the book's available on Amazon. Obviously, I'd love for people to check it out. And uh, I have a podcast too. People can listen to some episodes about, you know, I, I just, I interview people to just try and understand how do they design their conversations in in work and in life? And so that's the other place people can check out conversationfactory.com slash listen. Fantastic. Well, Daniel Stillman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
Oh man, it's just such a it's such a joy. It's an honor. You're an amazing interview. So it's been a <laughs> it's been really fun for me. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. My guest today is Daniel Stillman. He's the author of the book Good Talk. It's available on Amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, DanielStillman.com. Also, check out our show notes at AOM.is/slash conversation design, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you all to listen to the A1 podcast, but put what you've heard into action.